as we've been looking over the last few weeks at the series that we've called Between the Directories, we have been looking at some of the realities of life, and those things confront us, some that we're, we're excited about, some that we choose. I like that reality of life. That's exactly what I want. Others that we wouldn't choose. Some are really enjoyable. Some things are great that happen between those directories that we've been talking about. Other things just crush you. They just destroy you for a while. We've looked at things like marriage, and for the most part, People look forward to that. They look at that as a great time in life, something that's really going to add fulfillment and and bring out in them the things that maybe have never been brought out before. And then the following week, we looked at divorce and the tragedy of that. And then children and how they can bring, I think, both joy and frustration and sorrow and all of that, seemingly all within about five minutes. And kids are good at that. And then we looked at the idea of conflict and how to handle that and, and certainly Most people, unless you're a little bit crazy, don't like conflict. Some of you just like to keep it stirred up all the time, and you're a little bit nuts, but we tolerate you anyway, and we love you in the process. But most of us don't like it, and so we looked at it a few weeks ago, how do we handle that? And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at change. What do you do when everything around you seems to change? And last week, we began a message that we hit pause on, sort of in the middle of it. And I know that just like your favorite TV shows, when they sort of stop in the middle of the action and it says to be continued or you have to wait till the next week to get to conclusion. I know that all week long you've been holding your breath in restless anticipation of the conclusion of this message. Is that correct? Just nod your head. Okay. Everybody, some of you are not playing along. Anyway, as I was saying, you've been holding your breath just thinking, what's going to be the conclusion? This is so incredible. What's going to be the conclusion of this? I want you to know that, that even though I said it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I have been, I really have been looking forward to continuing finishing this message and this series uh, this morning because the principles that we're talking about in this last message centered on the idea of making the most of life because we're all going to die. The principles found in this I have been studying and looking at and just sort of letting them infiltrate my own mind and heart over the last several weeks and a couple of months. And, and I have seen a distinct change in my own heart in my own life, my mentality, my mindset, and not just about being sentimental or anything like that, but really about about directing my life more toward where God wants me to be in my heart and in my mind. And so I've seen a change in my own life, and I firmly believe that if we'll apply these principles that we we saw last week and this week, couple those together, and I think we'll all see some really significant changes and, and changes that God wants us to have. And so... We looked last week at the beginning part of this message, and we started off by highlighting some of the ways that the Bible confronts us with the reality that life is short. In James, we find that that life is like a vapor, it says, or a puff of smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We learn in the Psalms that that life is transitory. It's It's sort of on its way to another destination. This is not our home. We are transitory. We also learn in the Psalms that life is like grass, that appears for a little while and it just withers away. If you drive around, certainly during this time of year, you'll see that the grass is sort of done for a while. It's kind of nasty and brown, and it's not growing at all. And and life is sort of like that. We learned in the Psalms last week that that we have about 70 or 80 years if our bodies are strong. That's about it. And some of you have reached that threshold, and you can look back and agree with what the psalmist has said, that life passes quickly. Maybe you're there. Say, I can, I can attest to that. And then the one verse.
verse that we sort of looked at that launched us forward last week was from Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, a very powerful verse. And it says this, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Some of your versions may say, so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to understand how short life is. Teach me to to be aware that I am going to die one day. So as a result, let me operate in life with wisdom. And so we, we know that the Bible confronts us with that reality. Life is short. We each will face death at some point. It also confronts us at the same time, not just to tell us, look, life is short. Do all you can while you can. Enjoy it, all that kind of stuff. But it confronts us with the fact that the short life that we have is accountable to God on two fronts. The Bible makes it clear that we are accountable to God for our sin. And only those who stand under the forgiveness of Jesus Christ by placing your faith in him, only those people will stand before God with the right stuff, so to speak. There's nothing that we can do on our own to earn our way into heaven, to earn eternal life. It is only through faith in Jesus and receiving his free gift of eternal life because The truth be told that our sin, and every one of us has it, the Bible says, and by reality and experience, we all know that. The Bible says the only substantial and and satisfactory payment for sin is death. But it's not our death that God is going to require. It's the death of a perfect sacrifice, and in our place, Jesus died. And so it's only through placing our faith in him that we can then have that debt that we owe through sin canceled and paid for us. So we will one day stand before God when it's all said and done, and we will give an account for our lives. Did we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Number one, that's the first question. If not, then we have no chance once we pass on from this world to receive him. You get one shot at it, and it's in this life. The second thing that we're accountable for is how we live as a result of that. And so we're accountable for our sin. We're accountable for how we live as followers of Jesus. We have really two options. I think there's a powerful passage in 1 John that will show us those two different options. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 puts it this way. Here are the options. Do not love the world or the things in the world that belong to, or the things that belong to the world, rather. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. So there's your first option. Second option is this, but the one who does God's will remains forever. So the option is you can choose to go along with the pattern and and the direction and, and sort of the effort of the world and gain everything you can and think of life as only now and take care of the other stuff some other time. It doesn't matter. Or you can be the person who says, no, my option that I'll choose is to do God's will. And as we learned last week, God's will, what pleases him is to aim for having a heart like his. Let me give you a short, very short recap of, of last week. We looked at a guy named David, who was king of Israel, who God himself said was a man after God's own heart. And David, uh, being a man after God's own heart, we learned was a guy who just walked in step with God. When God said do something, he did it. When God convicted him of sin, he repented and turned from that. And that's what it means to have a heart that, that is going after God's. We looked at the first two lessons of six that we'll get through today, Lessons from a man after God's heart. Those first two were be faithful in the obscure and unseen things of life, and then courageously trust in the Lord even when no one else does. And this morning we'll pick up 
in a very familiar place for many of you in the story of the life of David. And last week we learned from some of his successes. This week we'll learn from some of his failures. And so if you have your Bible handy, I'd like for you to turn with me and hold your place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel is over in the Old Testament. You go to the table of contents. If you're not familiar with the Bible, don't let that stop. You go to the table of contents. You can look it up. There's the book of 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. And you'll see chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And like I said, just hold your place there for a second. For those who like to follow along on the back of your bulletin, you'll see an outline there just to give you some brief information about the message. Maybe you can go back and study it more in depth later on. But here's the third lesson from a man after God's heart, and it's this. Recognize and eliminate opportunities for vulnerability. Recognize and eliminate opportunities for vulnerability. Let's look at it together in 2 Samuel chapter 11, just in the first verse. It says, in the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, keep that verse up for just a second, guys. And, and I understand that David at this point has been on the throne of Israel for about 20 years. He's probably about 50 years old. He has had tremendous success. He is a very famous and well-known ruler, not just in Israel, but around the region. He is a very powerful man. He has defeated every enemy that has come against him, and he is a, a successful king. And then it says in verse 11 there, when the kings march out to war. This was the time of year that kings simply, I guess, for lack of anything else to do, they didn't have a PlayStation or or TV to watch, direct TV. They didn't have that, I guess. They, they weren't sitting browsing the Internet at that time. So, hey, what else are we going to do? Let's march out to war. So at the time when kings go to war, it says David did what? He sent Joab. Now, understand Joab was his highest-ranking general. This was a great man of war. And he sent Joab and all the forces, and what happened? They won. And yet David, in this particular moment, probably never imagined what he just set himself up for. Because look at verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed after probably taking a nap and strolled around on the roof of the palace. Hmm. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Now, some of you know the rest of the story. That's not the end of the story. David didn't immediately turn and say, whoa, wait a minute, I, I don't need to go down that path. We know but unfortunately, he did not. Why was it that he stayed behind? And I thought about that. David, you know, you're the king. Why, why, would you, why would you stay behind? Maybe he was bored. I don't know. Maybe he said, you know, war is just sort of, it's a thing, you know, from my youth. I've sort of grown out of that. I really don't want to go fight anymore. I'd rather not lead the troops today. You know, I'm 50 years old. I've done that for the last 20 years. I don't really care about that anymore. I don't know. Maybe he was arrogant. Maybe he thought, well, you know, they don't really need me anyway. It's just the Ammonites. Good grief, we can take them. I, maybe he was arrogant. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe things were going so well and he was so successful that he just took it for granted that they'll defeat them, no problem. Maybe he was having a midlife crisis. I don't have any idea why David would choose to stay behind. But he did. 
When every able-bodied man was going to war, the king, who was supposed to be leading them, stayed behind in the palace. Now, I don't find in the scripture any command for David to go to war. But I do know that this was not his usual practice. Usually, he would be in front of the troops leading them, giving direction in the battle. And was there a command to go? I don't see that immediately there in the scripture. But it was common sense, and it was the best practice for the king to be there. And in staying behind, those simple words, when, when kings march out to war, and then at the end of the verse, David stayed in Jerusalem. He stayed behind. He left himself open to a brand new set of circumstances that he wasn't ready for, that none of us would have been ready for. And he faced something that he wouldn't have dealt with if he'd simply done what he was supposed to do when he was supposed to do it. And I think there's a lot we can learn from David because we can either set him up and say, well, good grief, you know, that guy, he's just full of lust and he can't control himself and, you know, you know, it, I'm glad he fell like that. I, I, you know, he got what he deserved. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that those who think they stand or have strength or I'm not going to give in to that should take heed, the Bible says, lest you also fall. And so my encouragement to us today is to look at the life of David and say, wait a minute, I don't need to beat this guy up. I need to take heed. I need to say, what can I learn from this? Because he failed in the verses following this moment, and the results were disastrous. His life and the life of his family and the life of Israel was never the same. It destroyed his family, and it eventually divided the kingdom because of this one particular step of disobedience. From this particular instance, we can learn some simple principles to be where you are supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, to do what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it. There are some verses that highlight this. Just down the references if you want to. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh and its lust. Don't even give opportunity for sin, it says. Matthew chapter 5 says, In essence, stop at nothing to eliminate the possibility of sin. It says, If your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Be drastic. Go the extra mile to prevent the possibility of sin. In your life, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, say that because you are a follower of Jesus, consider yourself dead to sin. Dead people don't do anything. You get that? They don't, they don't act. They don't speak. They don't do anything at all. And Paul draws this, this connection to say, look, just like a dead person is incapable of doing that, consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, he says, and refuse to offer your body in any way to the possibility of sin. In Numbers chapter 15, the principle is this. Don't pursue the basic lusts of this world. David knew that. Now, most people would say, if you hear this, and I'm being a little bit extreme, that it's really not a big deal. And the truth is that sin is flirted with a lot in our culture. And most people will say, well, you're just kind of thinking about that. What's the big deal? Or, you know, you, you, you look but don't touch. I mean, good grief, you're not human if you don't look. Or, 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 well, it's really, yeah, maybe stretching the rules, you know, in that particular area of life or business, but nobody cares. I mean, everybody does that. But I really believe that based upon the whole of the Scripture that God detests even the appearance of sin in our lives. And I'm not trying to get legalistic with you. I'm just trying to say if you want to make the most of life, then understand that sin will destroy it. Sin will 
get that train off the tracks and derail it very quickly. And so I ask you, what things are providing opportunities in your life for vulnerability? What things are providing opportunity for vulnerability? What boundaries and safeguards do you need to establish? Maybe it's with the opposite sex. If you're a young person, maybe a single person, let me tell you, you don't like this, you want to hear this, it's not what anybody wants to know. And parents, let me speak to you a little bit as well. Parents of young people who may be dating or, or if you're a single person, the, the, the absolute worst thing you can do, the most vulnerability you can create is to spend time alone with someone from the opposite sex, someone that you're interested in, someone that you're attracted to, someone that you have feelings for. It is the worst thing you can do. Now, I, I know that, again, that's not popular. People say, well, how are you supposed to get to know somebody? You're going to figure it out one way or another. Trust me. You don't have to be alone all the time to get to know someone. You're more creative than that. You can figure it out. Parents, if you are allowing your young people, your teenagers or so on, to spend time alone with someone from the opposite sex, let me tell you something that you need to know that you probably have thought of, and, and young people, if this is you as well, their bodies don't know they're not married. Okay? Maybe an earth-shattering truth for you. They, their bodies do not know they're not married. Now, I'm not trying to get graphic or, or vulgar or anything like that, but they do not know they're not married. And yet they are wired to do what married people, the Bible says, are supposed to do. So understand time alone plus all of that is going to equal chaos. It's going to equal absolute destruction in their lives. And the greatest gift that a single person, that a young person can eventually give to their, to their partner in marriage, to their spouse, their husband or wife, is their purity. And as much purity as they can give. And so I would encourage you, if you're a person, single person, a teenager, a young person who's dating someone or interested, what boundaries do you need to establish? If you're a married person, the stakes are higher, I believe. And you need to establish, as do I, some incredible boundaries in our lives. I've had some great advice from some people that I love. And I've begun to operate by those principles over the last several years since I've been married. And I've told you these before, not to make me sound good, but maybe they'll help you. If you're a married person, do not ride in a car alone with someone who is not a close family member. It's not your spouse. Don't do it. Take separate cars. Be crazy. Whatever you've got to do, don't do it. You're setting yourself up. Don't have lunch with someone from the opposite sex without someone else there. Most affairs start over simple little things like that. Don't give counsel to someone who is of the opposite sex. You start talking about your marriage problems. They start talking about their marriage problems. And all of a sudden, each of you look more attractive than before. And one thing leads to another, and you take yourself further than you ever thought possible. So maybe there are some boundaries there that you need to set up. Maybe for you, it's, it's the vulnerabilities with the TV or the Internet. Maybe you need to set up some safeguards. And maybe, fellas, if, if you're staying up late at night just to watch the ball game, you say, you know what, I'll catch it on SportsCenter in the morning. I'm going to bed when my wife goes to bed because I will not allow the opportunity for vulnerability. Or maybe you'd set up some sort of watchdog program on your Internet service that monitors what you see. And you'd say, it may seem stupid to everybody else. I may not even have a problem with that, but I'm not going to allow any opportunity for vulnerability. Or maybe in your business practices, you just have an open book policy with other people to say, look, I'm not hiding anything. 
I'm not cheating on my taxes. I'm not hiding investments or revenues or anything whatsoever. I'm going to be completely open. And that way I can safeguard myself. If David had only recognized the opportunity that he created for vulnerability, I think his life would have been much different. Because he never would have been in that position. You want to make the most of life, understand that that means going after God's heart. And going after God's heart means eliminating those opportunities for vulnerability. The fourth lesson is this. Avoid the web of temptation and cover-up. Avoid the web of temptation and cover-up. 2 Samuel chapter 3 again. Let's read the rest of the story. So David, after seeing this very beautiful woman, so David sent someone to inquire about her, and he, the messenger, reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and what? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Interesting that the messenger would have included that. David, she's married. Hmm. Verse 4, it never even phased him. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant, verse 6. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Here's the cover-up. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, go down and be with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, verse 10, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why don't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out, to the, he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. Then verse 14, the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. That's amazing. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. And then verse 16, when Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. And eventually, he was killed. If you count the sins of David as he sort of stair steps down in this web of temptation and cover-up, I count these lust, adultery, manipulation, Lying, getting someone else drunk, murder, and causing someone else to sin. One opportunity for vulnerability, one giving in to temptation, led him down this path that included all of those things because he never interrupted the process. And that spiral took him further than he ever wanted to go. Sin is always like that. It always begins with something that seems so small and innocent, does it not? Well, that's the way it is. In any area of your life, don't just think of this in terms of lust or sexual temptation. In any area of your life, sin is, is always like that. Well, that's not a big deal. Who cares? And then that spiral begins, and you stare step down, and you look back, and you think, how did I wind up here? 
good grief, this is not who I am. I never wanted to do that. It hooks you. And he can't get free of it. Now, some of us here today think that we are living in complete freedom. Some of us here today think that because, well, I don't have any rules in my life. I'm my own person. I'm just doing my own thing through life. A lot of times young people are that way or or we hit a midlife crisis at some point and we wonder who we are and we go try to figure it out by, by not applying God's rules to our lives anymore. And some of us think that we're free apart from rules and authority and, well, I don't want all that stuffiness of God and all that sort of thing. Some of us think we're truly free, but the truth is that you are trapped in that lifestyle by almost an animal instinct. Whatever is appealing to you in that moment, you do it. You think that's freedom. You are trapped. And you are in that web because true freedom is found in directing those desires to the best possible outcome. And the best possible outcome, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, is to follow him so he can give you life in abundance. Direct those desires and so on toward that. David found himself entangled in this web, and he tried to cover it up. And eventually it caught up with him. Some of you know, you are in that web right now. And you have ways of covering things up and and acting a certain way and all of that. And you are absolutely trapped by temptation in every area of sin or different areas. And that cover-up continues to go. And that web, I'll tell you, is paralyzing. It will eventually destroy you. It will eventually come crashing down. We see that over and over and over again in the news. Be it through public figures or, or folks that we just may know you hear about. And that web that they've been trying to weave for so many years eventually collapses and their life is ruined because they never interrupt the process. Some of you are dealing with that temptation of lust. You know the Bible says that the only way to avoid lust, the temptation of lust, is to flee. It's not just to be strong and endure it. It's to run. That's it. It's the only instruction the Bible gives. Now, I would love if the Bible gave some other strategy for that. It just is run away. You're dealing with that? The best, the only way to beat it is to run. The truth is the web of temptation the web of cover-up will destroy your opportunity to have a heart like God's. I pray today that you gain freedom from that. The fifth lesson is this. Surround yourself with godly, honest people. Surround yourself with godly, honest people. Second Samuel chapter 12, look at that, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, now he goes on to explain this story. Nathan was a prophet. Every king had a prophet. The king's role was to run the, the, the nation, the government. The prophet's role was to be the spiritual leader. Now we think of prophet, and we think of somebody who's telling the future. But the primary role for the prophets in the Old Testament was not predicting the future, but was calling people out on sin, warning them of God's judgment, and instructing them on how to live. In fact, the role of the prophet in the Old Testament has more direct correlation to today's pastor than it does to a fortune teller. You understand what I mean? And so the role of the prophet was to hear from God, go tell the people, look, what you're doing is wrong. Stop what's going on. Here's what God's going to do if you continue in that. Let me tell you how to live. And so that's the role of the prophet. So Nathan was David's prophet, sent by God to tell him, hold on a second. I know what you've done, and it's amazing in this little story. God told Nathan what David had done, and Nathan presents it in such a way that David gets fired up at somebody else for doing exactly what he did, and Nathan says, you are the man who did it. You can imagine David just at that particular moment. You ever been there? You ever been caught? Your mouth just sort of drops open, and you think, 
somebody else knows. How, how did that happen? Well, this web that I was weaving was pretty good. You know how good at this I am. And you get caught, and that's what happened to David. And so when Nathan went to him, his motives were not to call out the king and make him look bad. His motives were to protect God's reputation and to help the king fall more in love with the Lord and follow him more closely. So he handled it in the right way. His timing was perfect. His choice of words, his approach was, was direct, but it was a private approach. The truth is we all need Nathans in our lives. Some of us are lone rangers right now, and you're operating on very dangerous ground. Because if you have no one in your life that can help you close the gap between who you are on the outside and who you are on the inside, then that gap is just going to widen. You ever experienced that? I'll tell you what I have. Well, it's really easy, isn't it? It's really easy to be someone on the outside and then somebody totally different on the inside. Or to sort of put on this front that, that looks good for everybody that has to know that things look good, and on the inside you're crumbling or you're dealing with that web of temptation and sin. And we all need those people in our lives. And so I ask you, who has access to you like that? Is there anybody in your life that has access? I made a phone call this past week to a great friend of mine. I hadn't talked with him in a little while, and I, I just I told him, I said, I have no reason for calling except to let you know that I want you to have access to my life because I don't want the gap to get real wide between who I am on the outside and who I am on the inside. And it's so easy to do that. And so I said, I don't, I don't know, really know what we're going to talk about. I just wanted to call you because if I don't call you, then that gap's going to widen because I don't have anybody who has access to me like that. And he's a guy who can tell me the truth. He's a godly man. He's a person who can tell me exactly, look, I know you. I know what you're dealing with. What you're saying is wrong or what you're saying is right, whatever it is. So maybe you need somebody in your life like that. You never get too old. You're never too young to have people like that who can say to you, look, I love you. You know my motives. You, you are someone very special to me, but let me tell you, what you're doing is wrong. You're heading down a slippery slope. Let me interrupt that for you. It's not easy to deal with. But it's interesting that Nathan's approach, going sent by God in God's timing, brings us to the very last lesson, and it's this. The lesson we learned from David's success. Refuse to justify sin. Just repent. Refuse to justify sin. Just repent. Look at verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. There's no attempt here by David to say, well, listen, you don't understand the pressure I'm under as a king. I mean, this stuff happens to me all the time. They, you know, there are women throwing themselves at my feet all the time. You don't understand the pressure. I mean, you know, I just, listen, I just needed to, to kind of have a release from all of this. It really doesn't matter because I'm the king and, you know. No attempt to do that whatsoever. No attempt to justify his sin or to rationalize it or to say, well, look, anybody in this position I'm in would have given in to that. I mean, that's that got to help me out somehow. He just says, look, I've sinned. I messed up. You're right. I was wrong. I have sinned. No way to blame somebody else in this situation. James, in the book of James, he says, if you're... Anyone who gives in to sin, it's not because God or someone else has caused it. It's because you gave in to your own evil desires, it says. You're dragged away by that kind of stuff. David knows there's no way to justify it. And the truth is it may not be a big deal to society, but sin is always a big deal to God. 
the stuff you're dealing with, you may say, eh, it's not going to get me in any trouble. It really doesn't matter. It matters to God because he cannot tolerate even the smallest sin. That's what sent Jesus to the cross. God hates sin so much but loves us enough to give his only son for us. So maybe today you'd say, you know what, I've been justifying a lot of my sin. I've been rationalizing it. I've been saying, well, anybody would do this. And maybe you're interrupted today by the word of God that simply says, look, refuse to justify it anymore. Just repent. There's great freedom in repentance. Repentance is a powerful tool. Because no longer then are you trapped by the web of temptation and cover up and this downward spiral in your life. But immediately you receive the forgiveness of God and the grace to deal with whatever consequences may come. I wish I could tell you that if you just confess your sins, that all the consequences will go away. I can't tell you that. It's not the way life works. But I can tell you this. When you confess your sin to the Lord, He will forgive you, hold that against you no longer, and give you the grace to deal with whatever the results are of that particular sin. David did not have the consequences erased. In fact, the consequences were disastrous, but he received the forgiveness of God. And in the New Testament, we find out that the same thing that was said about him in the Old, a man after God's own heart, was the same thing said about him in the New Testament. Long after he was dead, he was a man after God's own heart because he refused to justify his sin and simply turned from it. And so maybe you'd receive the forgiveness of God today and that grace to deal with whatever the consequences may be. That's the path to making the most out of life. David's life in a sentence was that he was a man after God's own heart. Though he was imperfect, he pleased God through his life of faith, through his life of devotion, through passion for the things of God and for his deep love for the Lord. And so my question is for you, what will it be for you when it's all said and done? What will be that life in a sentence? Will you have just taken up space or just gathered a bunch of stuff here for yourself? Or will you be a person who it can be said of you, he or she was a person after God's own heart? In closing today, I'd like for you to listen to the words of a song, and then we'll pray and stand together, and then we'll be dismissed. But maybe today during this song, you'd spend just a moment or two with the Lord reflecting on what is the aim of my life? Where am I going? Do I have a heart that's going after God's?